HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. You've probably heard of Alice Waters, who, with her trailblazing California restaurant, Chez Panisse, launched a movement around truly seasonal cooking and eating that could support farmers, communities, and the environment. But you might not know that in addition to her farm-to-table fine dining fame, in 1995, Waters started the Edible Schoolyard Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching children about food and transforming the public education system. This year, the Edible Schoolyard Project is celebrating its 25th anniversary, and today's guest is Angela McKee Brown, the executive director. In this episode, I talked to Angela about the organization's history and original school garden how it's grown its programming to reach thousands of schools around the world, and what the future looks like. All right, Angie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so excited to have you. Um, I have known about the Edible Schoolyard Project for a really long time and um, was kind of, um, I guess, not surprised, just um struck by the fact that it's celebrating its 25th anniversary. I did not realize that um, the organization had been around for that long, and that's really a big anniversary. Um, and you just did you just took over as the executive director last year. Is that right? Yeah, I actually began right at the start of the pandemic. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that for sure. sure. <laughs> um, but so so you're you're fairly new to this role as executive director, but um, given we're we're here to kind of talk about the organization's anniversary and um, you know the future for sure, but before but in order to kind of talk about the future, I thought we should talk a little bit about the history. Um, can you talk a little bit about Alice's original vision and and what the organization set out to do? 
Sure. So the Edible Schoolyard Project is celebrating its 25th year. We're a nonprofit that's based in Berkeley, California, and we're dedicated to designing hands-on learning experiences in gardens, kitchens, and cafeterias that connect children to nature, food, and each other. So we did start 25 years ago, and it's actually a really fun story about how we began. Um, Alice actually lives just down the street from the school campus, (laughs) and she goes on morning walks. It's a ritual she's done I think throughout her life. And while she was walking past the school campus, she noticed that the parking lot was actually very dilapidated. Um, It was broken up. There was graffiti everywhere. um, And it just looked like it hadn't been invested in. And so Mm. she was uh, recorded in the local newspaper during an interview saying, you know, what does that show our students about how we care for them? And so the principal of the middle school saw that in that interview and he reached out to Alice and he was like, well, what do you want to do about it? And so, yeah. And so Alice had this really great idea on it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so uh, she had this really great idea that she shared with him around what if we were to change it into a school garden Um, and not only grow food for the school community, but also use it as an educational resource. So that was the beginning of the Edible Schoolyard Project, um, where uh, they broke up that school parking lot, um, began to plant it with a cover crop, and then slowly over the course of many years, um, cultivate it. Um, And now it's a beautiful two-acre garden. Um, It's gorgeous. When you walk into it, it's meant to provoke a sense of awe and wonderment. And Mm. it's really almost difficult to explain it unless you're there, but it does cause you to just go, wow, um, and to meander around and explore. Uh, but yeah. when she started it, she believed that, you know, we have the traditional classroom where a student sits at a desk, um, oftentimes looking up at a whiteboard or a chalkboard and is being taught by the teacher. And um, she wondered, like, what if you were to go into the garden or go into a kitchen? Could you teach that those same sub- subjects like math, arts, humanities, um, reading, writing in those spaces? And so that is kind of the ethos of the Edible Schoolyard Project is that you can use these informal spaces, gardens, kitchens, cafeterias as places for vibrant learning. Hmm. I I didn't realize that that original garden space was two acres, which is pretty significant in an urban (laughs) space, right? That's a a nice size. Um, That's kind of incredible. Um, And I, I like the point you made about sort of creating these spaces and then using them for um, education and the way that you were just framing it, it's not, it, you know, it sounds like, of course we can use those spaces to teach anything really, right? Like move any sort of learning into these, um, sort of better spaces. Um, but then a lot of edible schoolyard projects curriculum is also about, um, teaching garden and right. Like gardening, cooking skills, Mm -hmm. like what, what is the, what are the programs, look like today? Sure. So when you enter into our kitchen classroom or our garden classroom, um, yes, you go to um, learn math or to learn science, but you're also doing that through gardening. Um, You're planting beds, you're um, making compost. So we have a really great lesson about the chemistry of compost. Um, In the kitchen classroom, you might be learning about um, the history of the Silk Road, but while you're making a curry or a dumpling. And so Mm. you're learning these technical skills. So you're learning how to safely uh, chop um, produce, or you might be learning how to effectively dig a a bed to plant. Uh, But you are also having this like rich and vibrant learning experience. And part of our mission is to utilize these spaces to connect students to nature. 
um, because that uh, connection not only supports their learning, but it also supports how they engage and interact with the world. So we believe in the values of nourishment, stewardship, and community. And that's also what we amplify and uplift as we um, provide learning opportunities in those spaces. Right. So it's sort of like an integration between the traditional learning, math, history, and then using um, cooking and gardening as this tool. Um, And so the original space that we're discussing in Berkeley um, is still up and running after all this time. Um, And then what about, so, so I know that other schools are also home to edible schoolyard projects, um, programming. How does that work? Is it um, you're sharing curriculum uh, with those schools or do each of those schools have their own gardens? Um, how does that play out as you expand? Sure. So, you know, 25 years ago, we started as one program at a one school campus, um, providing a learning experience to a thousand students every year. And over the last 25 years, we've actually grown into a global movement. So meaning uh, there's schools across the country and around the world, roughly about 6,000 programs um, who are utilizing our curriculum and our training resources in order to provide edible education on their school campuses. So um, when you think about that, it's um, you see programs in New York. So there's an edible schoolyard in New York. There's an edible schoolyard in Japan. And then you see other iterations oh, wow. of, yeah, it's a, it's really cool. There's a lot of beautiful I had no photos. Idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really robust program, actually. Hmm. Um, and so you see these um, versions of an edible schoolyard in different communities across the country, but they've been adapted to fit the needs of those communities. Um, when Alice began the um branching out and um, wanting to create models in different um, locations. Uh, she was really curious about if this could work in other spaces. So meaning, you know, in Berkeley, we have a gorgeous climate. Um, it's like perfect right. weather pretty much year round. You can grow anything pretty much any time, you know, so to speak. Um, yeah, I'm jealous, you know, <laughs> being on the East Coast, heading yeah. into winter. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we were um, curious about if this could exist elsewhere. And so that's one of the beautiful things about the program is that it is adaptable. And so that's why you see it in places like New York City or in New Orleans. Um, but then you also see iterations of the program, too, where it's not necessarily um, edible schoolyard as we know it, but we see it um, people utilizing gardens or kitchens um, for places as places for community building and learning. So programs like Grow Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania or the Blue Watermelon Project in Arizona, um, they look different than what you would see in Berkeley, but they still uphold those values of utilizing uh, nature as a um, tool for learning. Right. Can schools that don't have access to green space or kitchens utilize the curriculum? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So that was actually, um, you know, it's something that we've reflected on quite a bit over the years. And the curriculum is meant to be adapted to um, different um, uh, programs and different um, levels of resources. So it doesn't necessarily have to look like a two-acre garden in Berkeley. It could be three raised beds that are well-maintained and um, where students come out and have that experience just to get their hands into the dirt. Um, It's amazing how just getting your hands into dirt and seeing something go from a seed to a plant can be impactful. And so um, in that same vein, we also have a resource that's meant to be like a mobile kitchen where it's just kind of like a bin where you can get certain tools or um, equipment, kitchen equipment, and have a kitchen classroom um, anywhere. 
But one of the big evolutions of the program actually came with the pandemic. Um, and that was when we pivoted from our kitchen classroom because we could no longer operate there. You know, schools began to close. Um, we were no longer on campus. And so we began to expand our understanding of where edible education could take place. And we mm. moved into the home classroom. And so this new um, suite of resources that we released over the last year and a half are really focused on thinking about um, the multitude of experiences our students have and centering their lived experiences as a valuable resource for learning. Mm. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear more about that pivot um, during COVID. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the future. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here speaking with Angela McKee-Brown, the executive director of Edible Schoolyard Project. So right before the break, Angie, we started to um, get into the pandemic, which unfortunately we have to talk about because it's still here and affects everything we do, right? Um, and so you said that um, a lot of the materials that Edible School Year Project was producing had to move online. Can you talk a little bit about that that initial moment? Like when schools shut down, what were you thinking? Um, how disruptive was it? And, and kind of how you figured out the next steps? Sure. So when schools began to close, well, first off, we were living through a massive change within our global system. You know, um, right. communities across the world were being impacted in extreme ways and there was so much loss and trauma being felt. And so um, when schools began to close, that's when it really settled in for us, um, what was going on and taking place. And um, being a hands-on program that's focusing gardens and kitchens, you know, those are two very real resources that are necessary for our learning. Um, it was at first um, surreal to know that schools were closing and what would that mean yeah. for our program. And um, as we began to realize what our new reality would be, we paused for a moment and I asked the team, you know, what, what do we love to do? Um, we love to teach. We love to learn. We love to provide these experiences that bring our kids joy. And so um, we began to think, how might we still be able to provide that and be in service to our community as we go through this difficult time? And um, we're very fortunate to have an incredible curriculum designer, Raquel Weehill, 
um, and her um, co uh, Nick Lee on our team. And one thing that they said they could do was write curriculum um, and mm. um, think about this as a, a moment to reimagine what we do. And so we began to write Cooking with Curiosity. Um, it's a massive curriculum. I'm actually still impressed that they were able to create something like this. Um, it's a suite of 40 lessons um, mm. that reimagine um, how and where students can learn. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning where we um, supported a pivot from the traditional classroom into the untraditional classroom of a garden and kitchen. And so we continued that expansion of our thought process and began to think about the home as a classroom, as a Mm. place for learning. And so um, with this curriculum, we also had to take into consideration that our students were having very different lived experiences in that moment. Um, Being home can be a really positive experience for some students, and it can also be a very difficult experience for some students. And so when we were designing a curriculum, we didn't have that baseline understanding of everyone's going to have access to a kitchen. Everyone's going to have access to a garden or safe outdoor space. And so we began to think about the core components of our lessons and how we could extract those and create them in a space that would allow um, students in their home classrooms um, to be able to utilize them. And so we wrote them not from the perspective of a teacher teaching a lesson, but rather from a student being able to guide themselves through a lesson. So they're very student-centered, and they really focus in on the lived experiences of our kids, um, meaning there's these gorgeous uh, lessons where um, as you're reading a recipe, you're meant to call um, someone in your family or a community member or an elder and ask them questions about that. So, you know, maybe you don't have access to a teacher, but you could have access to your grandmother. Um, and in addition to that, we really honed in on skills. So thinking about how, you, you know, knife skills or how to flip food in a skillet, um, as well as um, things such as reducing food waste. So like growing food from scraps. Mm. Um, and so um, it's... They're, they're a beautiful suite of lessons, but they're also meant for educators, too. So I want to encourage teachers to check them out because they're easily adaptable and map onto Common Core and ELA standards. Hmm. And does it I mean, is it possible for to teach things like knife skills um, or um, like you mentioned, you know, flipping something in a skillet like virtually or is it meant that like for like a parent to be next to them doing it with them? Sure. So we've actually had a couple um, um, examples of this. Uh, So we did start to do online training classes. And so we leaned into social media pretty heavily when schools closed um, and uh, started to record videos. So our different Mm. team members would record their, you know, their experiences trying to flip rice in a skillet. Um, And then we had (laughs) students do the same. And it it began to create this sense of community. You know, you could laugh about it. You could try it. Um, but th- some of the lessons do require there being a caregiver present or an older sibling um, just to mm-hmm. provide support. And um, we actually um, we have a sister program in Stockton, California, where we um, pivoted and began to provide um, online classes. So we had Chef Leisha um, actually there on the computer screen talking students through how to um, uh, do various lessons. So there were, you know, knife skill classes. Um, a little nerve wracking to watch, but she was really diligent about asking the students to kind of tilt their screens so she could see what they were doing and provide feedback. Mm. Uh, and I want to talk about Stockton, but but first, just just while we're on this um, subject of of the kind of COVID pivot, um, 
Do you think that this experience and, and this kind of new learning that happened, will it affect how Edible Schoolyard Project operates in the long term? I think that's um, a really good question. I think we are really grateful um, to be back on campus uh, with schools opening up. I think that in-person interaction with students is invaluable. And so we're super fortunate and grateful that we're able to provide great learning experiences in person now. Um, And if you think about it, the garden classroom is actually one of the most valuable classrooms on a school campus right now uh, because it's outdoors. Um, You're Uh, able to have a little bit of space. Um, And so, you know, it's it's definitely kind of transformed how people see uh, garden education as a resource. Um, And so when we think about big picture and long term, I think the biggest impact um, will be just how we write lessons and how we think about learning and really making sure that the students' lived experiences are uplifted um, in our classroom spaces. Mm. And so you mentioned Stockton. So that um, was an expansion that happened very recently. Is that right? Yes. Um, So we partnered with uh, the former mayor, Michael Tubbs, uh, to think about what it would mean to bring Edible Schoolyard to Stockton. And originally, we had been focused in on thinking about the program um, being designed as a school lunch program. So Mm. again, the cafeteria is a place for learning. Every day, kids sit down in front of a plate of food um, in the cafeteria, and that could be a rich opportunity to teach them about what's on that plate, where it comes from, how it's grown, what it means culturally. And Mm -hmm. so we had begun to design this program, and we got school board approval on March 10th. And schools began to close March 13th. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And so that was, um, again, another one of those moments of being like, okay, what do we do? And so um, Mayor Tubbs, um, I still remember being on that call with him. And he said, how might we reallocate resources? And so I began to think about, well, we have a commitment to our community. We have a commitment to our children. um, We have a commitment to learning. And we have this commitment to farmers. Um, We had begun to network with the farmers, um, in particular the organic regenerative farmers in the region, uh, to think about how might we get that food that's being grown in Stockton to the schools in Stockton. Um, Because Stockton's located in the Central Valley region of California. So that means it's growing food for much of the country. And that food leaves Stockton rather than stays within Stockton. So the idea around the school lunch program was that we could partner with these farmers and bring that food that they're growing into the school cafeterias and provide a consistent um, buyer for that food. And so we'd had all these conversations and we had been beginning to imagine what that would mean. But because schools closed and, you know, the school lunch program did a dramatic shift in that moment, too, in order to make sure there was um, a safe way for um, students to access food. We decided to um, instead use those relationships, use our grant dollars um, and our commitment to the community to build out a community supported agriculture program. So a food box program where we were purchasing um, anywhere from hundred to 575 boxes a week from those farmers and distributing them directly to the community through local community centers, um, school parking lots. Um, and each box contained um, a learning resource. So a recipe mm. on how to cook what's in there. Um, leeks can be very uh, unidentifiable <laughs> uh, um, vegetables to some folks. Um, same sure. with if you get like a huge thing of celery, like what do I do with all this? Yeah. Um, so we began to provide those recipes, learning opportunities, as well as a phone to chef hotline so people could call us. 
Um, and throughout the, the, the first year of the pandemic, we um, distributed over um, 170,000 pounds of organic produce, which resulted in about a 300,000 plus dollar investment in the local um, farm economy. And wow. that was huge, not only for the community, but also for the farmers. Um, because if you remember, farmers markets were closing, restaurants were closing. Yeah. You know, the supply chain was just totally disrupted in terms of how food was being distributed. So this gave folks um, the opportunity to keep going during that difficult moment. Sure. And so now that, um, I mean, obviously the, the pandemic is ongoing, but things have changed a lot since then. Um, what will Stockton's Edible School Yard Project um, program look like going forward? Yeah. So what we learned during the pandemic, again, that was the expansion from the garden classroom or the kitchen classroom into essentially the home and the community. And so we began to reimagine what our program in Stockton could look like. And we actually just recently um, were able to secure a lease on a six acre farm in South Stockton. It's, um, it's, it's, it's been a community farm for the last 15 years, I think. Um, and the lease became available. And so we were able to um, take it on. And so what we're doing right now is um, planting food because we're still going to be providing those organic CSA boxes to the community. Um, But we're also building out the space and adding on a learning layer. So that way students can come and visit uh, during field trips. Um, So during the academic day, come out to the farm, have a garden class, have a kitchen class, be able to sit down together and experience that organic school lunch program that we were speaking about earlier. And then Mm -hmm. in addition to that, um, it's a community space. So there's community plots. Um, we're planning on community events. So thinking, again, that expansion of edible education to not only be student-centered, but also for the entire family. Mm. And, you know, w- when I think about Edible Schoolyard, I think about edible education and, and the learning that the students are um, involved in. But I didn't realize that, you know, you also were potentially working with school lunch. Is there a component in Berkeley where... You're also um, adding that layer of partnering with local farms um, to supply the cafeteria. Yeah, so that's actually something that we're still working on. I think our biggest initiative right now around school lunch is our pledge to public education, which is an advocacy campaign focused on um, advocating for a 100% free organic school lunch for every kid here in the state of California that's procured from farmers and ranchers who are taking care of the land and their workers and that is um, provided to students in a setting that um, provides learning opportunities around nourishment, stewardship, and community. So we've really been um, focusing our resources here in Berkeley on advocating for state-level mm. change around this. And we've actually seen some huge movement here in the state of California around uh, universal free, and now I think there's movement towards organic as well, which is really exciting. Wow. Yeah, California did officially pass universal school meals, didn't it? Yeah, which is huge yeah. for school food. Right. And, you know, there, there's a, a, a push for that to be um, extended at the national level. And I know a lot of organizations like Edible Schoolyard are, are involved in that um, advocacy. And um, it's interesting. A lot of times I feel like states, especially California, kind of lead on this stuff and then it trickles up. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if we could get national and universal free, that would be incredible for our kids. Um, yeah. When you have universal free, it, it, it means so many more students are participating. 
Um, and it just means that you reduce that stigma around what it means to eat school lunch because it's meant for everyone. Um, it's a community good. It's a community resource. And universal free would uplift that value. Absolutely. So one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, over the course of uh, Edible Schoolyards now, you know, almost three decades, um, what kinds of evaluations have you or, you know, the organization done in terms of measuring the impact? Like, obviously, you know, kids are, are learning, they're, they're cooking, they're working in these gardens. But what do we know about how this is actually affecting students' overall education and especially their relationship to food and the environment um, overall? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, we have a ton of qualitative data, um, but in terms of quantitative, um, Edible Schoolyard in New York actually partnered with Columbia University's uh, School of Public Health to do a really extensive study on the impact of edible education on the lives of our children. And from that study, you know, there were some really amazing data points that I think um, any teacher in a school garden or kitchen could affirm. But um, one of the points is that 98% of students who try the food that they make in class um, then eat the food that they make in class. Um, so, you know, we're, we're a vegetarian kitchen, so that means lots of vegetables, lots of fruits, mm-hmm. um, and they're eating that food. And then um, in addition to that, uh, 78% of students um, reported increased vegetable preference from third to fifth grade. So that's a really young mm. group, and that's where you can have a huge impact on future choices throughout life. Um, and so that study, um, I think, is one of the big ones that we like to reference. Um, but then we have the qualitative data as well in the sense that, um, for instance, uh, at our, our program in Stockton, there was um, a parent who reached out to us and she was saying how her daughter had just participated in the online cooking class um, utilizing the organic CSA box. And mm. uh, they had made cauliflower <laughs> during class. And the next morning she woke up and she was like, can I have cauliflower for breakfast? <laughs> um, and that to me is a win, you know, yeah. uh, in terms of just expanding students' um, appreciation and love for food. You know, we have such um, rich and vibrant cultures. And I think so many of us do have that appreciation. And this just complements that and continues to expand it. So um, I think there's so many stories that I could share with about with you about the impact this has on kids' lives and their willingness mm. not only to try new things, but their confidence in the kitchen, their confidence being outdoors, and their connection to community. Because we sit down at the table at the end of each class and share a meal together. And that means we're engaging mm. in conversation. We're getting to know each other. We're building relationships. And right now in our nation's history, I think that is one of the most important things we can be doing. Absolutely. So you just celebrated this big anniversary, 25 years. Um, what is ahead for the organization? What's your focus for the future? Yeah. So um, we're really excited about continuing our kitchen and garden um, classes. We have our online curriculum. Uh, we just released an organic curriculum called Understanding Organic. Um, It's a really beautiful curriculum that's um, really rooted in the garden classroom and building students' understanding of what organic means to them, to their communities, um, as well as to the environment. Um, And then we also have um, our online training courses, which is super new for us. It was a result of the pandemic. We shifted from Mm. in-person to online. And then um, in the not-too-distant future, we're working on building out the Alice Waters Institute for Edible Education in partnership with the University of California at Davis. So that is going to be the 
biggest new thing that's on the horizon. Um, And that will have an incredible impact, not only in terms of um, our ability to engage and interact with educators, but how we move um, in terms of policy, research, um, and just uh, awareness. So that's at the the University of California, Davis. So that will be primarily focused on training educators who can then take the Edible Schoolyard um, framework to their classrooms in the in the future. Uh, yes, that's one of the primary yeah. focuses. Okay. Um, because right now, you know, well, prior to the pandemic, in person trainings were limited to like one time a year during the summer, just because we're an active school campus. Um, sure. And so, having a brick and mortar space where we can bring educators from across the country and around the world year round um, and give them not only the incredible learning experience, but also connect them to, you know, um, academic resources as well as each other. Um, I think we'll only accelerate and amplify the work. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.